You're listening to Cybersecurity Inside, a podcast focused on getting you up to speed on issues in cybersecurity with engaging experts and stimulating conversations. To learn more, visit us at intel.com slash cybersecurity inside. Most organizations don't attack the tax for two to three years. Why on earth is a subject like this is so important not matter to me? There are multiple layers of security that you need in an organization, and sadly, there's no one-size-fits-all. Hi, and welcome to the Cybersecurity Inside Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Garrison, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Camille Moorhart, on this rainy Oregon fall day. It feels more like winter. I can't believe it's not officially winter yet. I know. You know, I, I felt so guilty today. I had a short break during lunch. I quickly ate and I went to my dog Chester and said, all right, buddy, let's go out for a walk. And I got his collar and his leash on and we walked out the door only to have it <laughs> raining. And you see this dog who's like, you're kidding. You're not taking me on a walk today. So I, I still in the rain walked him a few hundred yards and turned around and came back. And he at the end looked at me like, are you serious? Is that all we're doing today? <laughs> He's a water dog, right? He doesn't care. No, he does not care. He would, <laughs> If I could just run him in the backyard and jump him in the river, he would be just fine. But uh, anyway, so not to talk too much about the weather today. How about our topic, which is, I think, fascinating. We're diving into really the details of legislation that's currently, well, actually, part of it's already been signed and some of it's imminently going to be signed, we hope. Uh, and that is the infrastructure bill just passed by the U.S. Congress and signed by President Biden. And what's in it? What are the implications from a technology infrastructure standpoint as well as cybersecurity? And then also we're going to jump into a bit more detail on the CHIPS Act. And I thought it was really, really good, meaty conversation. I've really liked this uh, follow-on, too, to the earlier conversation that we had with Ollie Whitehouse, right? In this conversation with Jason Oxman, we dive in really into those intricacies of the infrastructure bill. It's like he knows every last detail about it and where all of the allocations are and really gets into, you know, what are the implications for cybersecurity specifically in, in addition to improving digital inclusion over the coming years. So it was a great conversation. Yeah. And I know, at least for me, I had heard about, you know, the sort of amounts of spending that are included, but I hadn't really heard the breakouts in these bills. And to understand the implications, I thought was really interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating to talk with somebody who knows that level of detail. So why don't we jump right into it, Camille? What do you say? Yeah, let's listen. Our guest today is Jason Oxman. He is president and CEO of Information Technology Industry Council. ITI is the global trade association for the technology industry founded in 1916. That's interesting. Uh, Jason is the global trade association's leader and technology and public policy expert. So welcome to the podcast, Jason. Well, Tom, thanks so much. It's great to be with you. I'm excited to have the opportunity. I'm looking forward to our conversation very much. Yeah. So the the, the industry association was formed in 1916. Like I I, I just got to believe that the issues they were dealing back then are just slightly different than what we're dealing with today. 
Uh, a lot of them were different, uh, and of course, the technology industry was very different as well. We were founded as the Business Appliance Manufacturers Association. So in a way, a lot of what our members do today, making and deploying technology solutions for businesses and, and for consumers, uh, it's the same thing they were doing in 1916. Uh, fun fact, two of our founding members are still with us today, 105 years later. One of them is IBM. And the other uh, used to be known as National Cash Register when it was first founded, uh, now known as NCR. No kidding. You know, uh, at first I thought you were telling me that some of the people were the same. I'm thinking, well, math doesn't really work there. But can you just spend maybe a, a minute or two and talk about what does ITI do today? We, we've had uh, some conversations in the podcast previously about things like the CHIPS Act and so forth. And so I think just setting it in context. So ITI as a trade association represents 80 of the world's most innovative technology companies. Uh, we're a global organization. So we have 57 professionals on four continents that are very focused on uh, really one thing, and that is promoting innovation. And we do that by interacting with government officials around the world on behalf of our member companies and helping advance sound public policies that promote innovation. Our definition of the technology industry, if you will, is actually very broad. So it includes companies that make components for technology, like semiconductors and parts and other things that go into technology devices. Uh, it also includes companies that operate networks, financial services networks, uh, and social networks, business networks, and software networks. It also includes companies that offer the devices that we all use, the ones we carry around in our pockets, the ones that are on our desks, the ones that allow us to work from home and learn from home. So what are some of the hot topics or, or things that are on the minds of your member companies where you're trying, obviously, to engage policymakers and so forth, regulators? What's on the top of the list now or maybe the top couple of items that people are looking at? Well, there's a joke in, uh, in Washington that every week is infrastructure week. This week that we're having this conversation just happens to be infrastructure week uh, for real because we're very focused on a very recently enacted into law broadband infrastructure measure. It's part of the infrastructure bill, a very bipartisan bill that passed its uh, way through both the House and the Senate and President Biden uh, recently signed into law. It's focused on broadband. Uh, the broadband infrastructure law has over $40 billion that will be invested in improving broadband and, uh, equity and access uh, across the country. So it's investment in broadband in underserved and in unserved areas. It's investment to schools and libraries, health centers, public safety uh, facilities, uh, community housing projects. So a huge investment in broadband. That's important to the entire tech sector because broadband enables uh, really almost everything the technology industry does. So infrastructure investment, digital infrastructure, that's a huge focus and, and probably the biggest issue that's going on uh, right now. Is there anything particularly different about digital infrastructure that's gone into this bill or, or legislation from prior infrastructure bills or actions, even if they weren't legislated? That's a great question because obviously the government has for uh, decades, uh, if not more than a century, uh, been focused on investing in infrastructure of some form. Uh, the government uh, used to grant a monopoly to the local telephone companies in the country and help them invest in wiring the country. Uh, it was Telegraph before that. 
So there, you're absolutely right. There has been a lot of infrastructure investment historically. What's different here is the investment is really focused on broadband, not any particular type of broadband, uh, but just making sure that everybody has access to fast speed. But there are also elements of the uh, infrastructure law, like the Digital Equity Act uh, program. That's about a $3 billion program that's focused on promoting adoption and digital inclusion in underserved areas. There's an investment focus on connectivity, making sure that people who can't afford broadband uh, can get help from the government because broadband is not a luxury anymore. It's a necessity. There's a middle mile uh, network program in here for unserved areas. It's really focused on uh, electric grid connections. There's tribal connectivity uh, in here, about $2 billion to provide funding for uh, Native Americans in, in Alaska and Hawaii and elsewhere for digital inclusion. There's $2 billion focused on rural utility services, so a lot of money there. And then the final thing I'll note is that there is cybersecurity funding in this law as well. So uh, over a billion dollars to make sure that these networks are secure so that we don't just deploy broadband networks that can be accessed by criminals. So a lot of good new stuff in there. Yeah, I was going to try to bridge us over to cybersecurity here, and you did it for me. So in this ginormous infrastructure bill, there is a realization around cybersecurity. I guess for the listeners of, of this podcast, what should they expect to see either from a security standpoint or from, I, I would say, the more traditional uh, technology users that are out there, not on the fringes, but the technology users, what, what should they expect to see as a result of this infrastructure package? Yeah, the infrastructure package and the cybersecurity provisions in particular are addressing, these are really headline issues. I mean, we hear about them all the time, these ransomware attacks uh, that are uh, focused on uh, U.S. businesses trying to extort money from them in order to get their networks to keep running. You also hear about it in the context of national security, because a lot of these cyber attacks and these ransomware attacks are actually coming from foreign actors that in many cases are either tacitly state-sponsored or uh, ignored by the, uh, the states and foreign uh, governments that, uh, that allow these criminals to operate within their borders. So uh, a couple of things that I think are really interesting in the infrastructure law, uh, cybersecurity provision. One is funding for the Office of the National Cyber Director. We've actually never had a uniform federal government approach to cybersecurity. It's been handled within individual agencies. And uh, recently, Congress created the position of the Office of the National Cyber Director, but it didn't fund the office, which is not particularly helpful. So the bill actually has $21 million for uh, the first fiscal year of funding for the National Cyber Director. Second thing is something called the Cyber Response and Recovery Fund. This is $100 million that fits within CISA, which is the arm of uh, the Department of Homeland Security uh, that uh, looks at cybersecurity. So it, it establishes this fund to help federal and state and local governments get reimbursement for these attacks and also get technical assistance uh, for cyber instance. And the third thing I mentioned is a grant program, a billion-dollar grant program that provides uh, money to state and local governments to address cybersecurity risks. And ITI is actually working on helping uh, implementation. So some really good provisions and equally, if not more importantly, some funding for these uh, cybersecurity measures. So, Jason, one of the interesting elements of what you just mentioned was this billion dollars for state and local governments to spend money on securing their infrastructure, which means, obviously, as citizens, we all benefit from that. 
but also, you know, the, the technology ecosystem will now have these prospective customers in the government agencies looking for hardening of their infrastructure, which is, I mean, that's a sizable chunk of money. It, it is a lot of money. It, it's not nearly enough, unfortunately, but it's a, it's a good start given that there was no program like this uh, before. Uh, yeah, we're very focused in uh, helping state and local governments and, and municipalities uh, secure their infrastructure because those are logical attacks for cyber criminals as well. In fact, uh, ITI has a substantial public sector business run by the former CIO of the FBI, Gordon Bitco, who has been on our team for a couple of years and has built out a, a capability for us to help provide advice and counsel to government entities on how to secure their networks. And uh, the federal government taking this on as part of the infrastructure bill is a good reminder that infrastructure is roads and, and bridges and waterways and utilities, but it's also broadband and digital networks and systems and in the same way that we need to invest and are now investing to make sure that roads and bridges and tunnels don't fall down or collapse, the digital equivalent of that infrastructure falling down and collapsing is a cyber attack. And it's good that we're making investments there as well. Yeah, no, I mean, really, just, just to think about it visually, the broadband connection to the home is the mechanism for transporting services now, services from the citizens to the government or vice versa. We, we live in a world right now where you have to be connected. If you're not connected, you're at a huge disadvantage. Um, so it makes sense. So I have a question on this. Are there provisions in that cybersecurity portion for privacy or studying privacy or looking into that or guarantee, you know, having some sort of a, I know I can't probably use the word guarantee, but how are we considering that as part of infrastructure? Well, that actually uh, harkens back to, uh, to Tom's earlier question about our policy priorities. We don't have a federal privacy law. So, Camille, the short answer to your question is no, um, this is not a federal privacy law. We need one quite desperately. In fact, it's somewhat unusual that the United States doesn't have a federal privacy law. The European Union has something we're all familiar with called GDPR. GDPR is the equivalent of a federal privacy law across Europe. All 27 members of the European Union are uh, required by the GDPR law uh, to protect the privacy of their citizens. We don't have that equivalent here. It would be terrific if Congress would uh, move forward on a federal privacy law. We have some states that have done it. Um, but, of course, a patchwork of 50 different privacy laws is less than ideal, particularly for the technology industry, which obviously doesn't deploy products on a state-by-state -state basis. So no privacy law here in the infrastructure bill that was passed, but we still need one. So we talked a little bit about the infrastructure bill up to this point. And I know that also working its way through Congress is the CHIPS Act. And we've mentioned it in various podcasts already, but I, I think it'd be great to have you level set everyone, like what is in the CHIPS Act? So the CHIPS Act is another huge legislative priority for us at ITI. It's enormously important for the semiconductor industry, but it's even more important for the customers of the semiconductor industry. You cannot open a newspaper and not hear about the semiconductor shortage that's impacting every aspect of every manufacturer of every product in the country. Uh, I think the latest thing I saw was that uh, you know some Chevy pickup trucks are not going to have heated seats because they can't find enough semiconductors. Now, there are a lot of reasons why there's a semiconductor shortage, and we need to think of this uh, solution not in the short term, 
uh, way, but in a long-term way. And that's what the CHIPS Act is about. The CHIPS Act is legislation that is designed to advance semiconductor manufacturing in the United States. So it's a $52 billion piece of legislation that would implement uh, two principal programs. One is an allocation of a little bit under $50 billion to what's called the Chips for America Fund. So this is funding that the Commerce Department would implement to provide an incentive to semiconductor manufacturers, internationally headquartered or headquartered in the U.S., doesn't matter, to build chip manufacturing plants in the U.S. It's not going to cover all the costs of building those plants, not by far, but it's an incentive to say, let's get those plants built here in the U.S. Let's get U.S. manufacturing capability of semiconductors built up. So that's uh, about $49.5 billion. The rest of the money, about $2 billion, is for a Chips for America Defense Fund, which is focused on R&D, testing and evaluation, workforce development, and other kind of related activities in coordination between the private sector uh, and federal agencies to support the needs of the Defense Department and the intelligence community to make sure we have semiconductors and support that critical mission. So really, the CHIPS Act is enormously important. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Tom, that it was not included in this infrastructure bill. Uh, however, there have been very recent conversations on Capitol Hill about how to move this forward. As a procedural matter, there was conversation about including the CHIPS Act in the what's called the NDAA. It's the Annual Defense Appropriations Act. It's one of the only things that Congress does guaranteed every year it funds the Defense Department. So there's conversation about including it there, which would have been great, still would be great. But the latest conversation, the latest intelligence that we have is that the Senate and the House are going to move to conversations, coordination, if you will, between the two bodies on moving the NDAA forward and also moving the CHIPS Act forward and optimistic that we can get this done by the end of the year. Is there a specific goal, like percent of chips in the world manufactured buyer in the United States or some sort of an absolute quantity that the government is after? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question, Camille. And, and we know the numbers uh, have been moving in the wrong direction. Uh, the U.S. is responsible for a little bit under 13% of global manufacturing of semiconductors today. That number has fallen by more than half uh, in the last 30 years, which, again, is moving us in the wrong direction. So the legislation doesn't call for a specific percentage uh, to your question, but it is looking to get the U.S. back to where it has been, even though it was decades ago, where the U.S. is manufacturing closer to a quarter or a third of the world's semiconductors or hopefully even more at some point. Is there any sort of a stipulation within the uh, funding for semiconductor facilities for the breakout, meaning some of that money is being allocated for leading edge manufacturing for logic, like what you know Intel, as an example, does. And there's going to be another bucket for memory type devices or other types of manufacturing of uh, semiconductors. Is, is there that kind of an idea or is it basically just a big allocation of dollars? Yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. The uh, focus of the legislation is actually the other way around. There is a small amount, uh, about $2 billion dollars, that's reserved for what I'll call legacy chip production, legacy chips that may not be the most cutting edge, but that are used by the military and other critical uh, industries. So that's actually the allocation. It's, it's a small percentage, but it's still a percentage to focus on legacy chips. And I think the hope is without, because of course this is not the role of government, 
without specifying how many nanometers uh, the, the chip should be to qualify for funding. I think the, the idea is because most of the money is allocated for programs focused on uh, next generation investment and, and next generation chips. So to your question, not specifying it uh, with the exception of a, a particular investment level in legacy chips, uh, but making sure that the money is available for advanced technology. And also, I should have noted this before, there's also money allocated for uh, packaging, manufacturing, and other R&D programs uh, under the National Semiconductor Technology Center. But this will be implemented by uh, the Commerce Department, uh, which has a semiconductor incentive and R&D program already authorized under the NDAA last year. Um, and the Commerce Department will, will set the rules. But, you know, we've already seen some great announcements. Uh, you know, Arizona is about to see an explosion in, uh, in manufacturing capability for the semiconductor industry. We want to see more of it, but uh, we'll, we'll definitely see investments made in, in facilities that have already been announced. I have kind of a related question, which which it seems like you're answering a little bit of, but um, we interviewed uh, former Congressman Will Hurd a little while ago, and he was talking about, among other things, the artificial intelligence kind of push and the race uh, that the United States is in with other countries. And I'm just wondering, obviously, some other countries have very focused investments in specific verticals. I don't know if you can call artificial intelligence a vertical to be fair, it's probably much more of a horizontal. But is there any kind of encouragement or expectation? You talk about leading edge innovation, but are there certain areas that government is trying to push or encourage the United States to innovate in? Yeah, I think uh, quantum computing is one area that the U.S. is very focused on. AI is certainly an area uh, of investment uh, that the U.S. government is focused on as well. There's a cross-agency AI initiative uh, in the Biden administration focused on making sure that investment in AI happens here in the U.S. Quantum computing is another one I'd mentioned. And, and you mentioned the international focus, and, and I should have noted this as well. You know, the CHIPS Act is a, a U.S. initiative, obviously, and is going to focus on investment in the U.S. But the U.S. is in competition with a lot of other countries around the world that want to invest in uh, these kind of next generation technology programs. Europe is discussing uh, doing this as well. And, and Intel has announced a, a $7 billion expansion in uh, bringing manufacturing capability to the EU as well. So this competition is great. Uh, you know, every country wants to host these manufacturing capabilities and get these next generation projects moving forward. But uh, again, uh, AI is, is enormously important. It is, it is the future of a, a lot of technology. And obviously, semiconductor manufacturing is crucial to the computing power that will drive AI. I don't know that out of this program, there will be a specific focus on any uh, outcome-oriented use of the technologies that are manufactured, you know, like AI or quantum. But I know it is something that for competitiveness reasons, uh, the U.S. Uh, should be very focused on. So just to follow up a little bit on, on that, Jason, that... You mentioned about Europe as an example, and you also mentioned earlier around privacy and GDPR and how they have those policies. So are you expecting to see similar types of legislation that occurs in European Union as an example? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, earlier this year, actually just a couple of months ago, the European Commission uh, announced a new legislative proposal. It's actually called the European Chips Act. I suspect they'll come up with a better name for it, so it doesn't appear derivative. Uh, but it's very focused on increasing the resilience of the semiconductor supply chain uh, in Europe, also working on boosting uh, research in the field. The EU also 
has been working on freeing individual member states to provide incentives for manufacturing capability uh, to happen in Europe as well. And uh, there's a newly formed EU-US group called the Trade and Technology Council, uh, which has as part of its mandate, this is a body of government officials from the EU and the US that coordinate on technology policy issues. They have 10 working groups. One of the working groups is focused on issues related to manufacturing incentives to make sure that there's a coordination between the two. Uh, I think EU officials, quite frankly, are a little worried that the US is ahead of them uh, and they want to make sure to adopt measures that inspire uh, manufacturing to take place in Europe as well. And my response to that is do it. Just to build on that then, what are you seeing or what do you expect to see in Asia? So uh, Asia, uh, obviously a lot of manufacturing takes place in Asia. There's a lot of uh, manufacturing in Taiwan, for example. China has a lot of manufacturing capabilities. I think the interesting thing uh, about China is the Chinese government has a long history of subsidizing its own homegrown companies and uh, endeavoring to compete against U.S. and European and other uh, international companies as well. It's actually interesting. The semiconductor industry is one area that China has not done quite as well as in other areas in competing against uh, other non-Chinese companies. But there's a lot of competition and uh, a lot of keen interest in China in stepping up that, uh, that investment. What do you see on the horizon in terms of legislation or pressures or challenges coming that, you know, now that we have infrastructure and CHIPS Act kind of moving through, what's next? You know, we move, as you noted, from passage to implementation uh, on the infrastructure uh, now law. And that implementation is going to be enormously complicated, a lot of projects to get funded. And our member companies at ITI are very focused on helping address the digital divide by uh, deploying broadband to unserved and underserved Americans, uh, of which there are tens of millions. So a lot of people to reach with a combination of wireless and wireline services. Uh, on the wireless side, there are some interesting new technologies like OpenRAN, and the 5G deployment obviously is underway, and that's going to power a lot of new computing and reach a lot of uh, unserved Americans with broadband. So we'll be working on implementation of the Infrastructure Act. On the CHIPS Act, obviously, we need to move it across the finish line, get it to the president's desk. The good news is the president has already said uh, that he supports the CHIPS Act, so we know he supports it moving through Congress. Congress doesn't move as quickly as we might like sometimes, but uh, looking forward to getting that done and then getting that money out the door to encourage uh, manufacturing of semiconductors here in the U.S., now, we also have a lot of tax issues to deal with on the international stage that we're focused on. We need to get that privacy work done, a lot of data issues that we're working on. It's not going to be a slow uh, policy year in 2022 by any stretch. Before we let you go, we have one last segment that we do that we call Fun Facts. And I know that you have one and rumored to be two fun facts uh, that you'd like to share. I am a big fan of voluntary industry standards. Uh, and we don't think about how voluntary industry standards really impact our lives. But during the pandemic, uh, I have no doubt that everyone who's working from home or has kids learning from home has become intimately familiar with USB. And USB is the way in which we connect our webcams to our monitors, our monitors to our keyboards, our keyboards to our laptops, to other devices that we use, to our speakers. I don't think a lot of people know that Intel is responsible for USB. Everybody thinks about Intel inside, and we know that something's going on inside our devices uh, that makes them work. 
But the USB port on the outside is actually the responsibility of an Intel scientist who published the USB standard in 1996 uh, and is the reason we can connect all these devices around us together. So that was my fun fact, Intel and USB. You're telling me we've only been doing this since 96? <laughs> yeah, well, Seems USB, like forever. <laughs> USB we have. But, I, yeah. I, you know, interestingly enough, I worked for years very closely with that, uh, with that engineer. Very, very sharp, smart guy. Great, great guy. Uh, so, Camille. Oh, actually, that was your first one, Jason. What, what is your second one? Because that was a great fun fact. So you get the, the opportunity to go for number two. I appreciate that. And that is that the, uh, the Food and Drug Administration requires those little stickers that are placed on produce that you get at the, that have the, uh, the barcode and the, uh, the number on them um, at the supermarket. Those uh, stickers are required to be edible. Yes, I've heard this one. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. really good news. Because I've eaten probably quite a few of those stickers. Yeah, no, I think we all have. <laughs> Very good. All right, Camille, what's your fun fact today? Okay, so in, in the spirit of the ecosystem, I was looking at some of the planet's ecosystem, and I have discovered that there's mycelium that connects trees, and in particular, fir trees with alders, which are deciduous trees, which have larger flat leaves, they actually uh, connect through these things that aren't roots, but it's kind of like this fungal network that connects underground the trees. And they actually transport nutrients uh, back and forth between the species, depending on which species. It'll happen up to two times a year, depending on which species is able to capture the most energy, given, say, when the deciduous tree doesn't have leaves, then the fir tree will will transfer energy toward the alder, but then the alder, when it can photosynthesize in the summer, will transfer nutrients back to the fir tree. That is very cool. Very cool. So my fun fact relates back to some research I was doing with previous one around volcanoes. And, and I, I found some really interesting ones, but I, I was going to share one today. And that is that rubies... And sapphires, you know, the, the gems, are actually the same mineral. It's called corundum. And what differentiates them is that corundum that has iron stain will actually make the, the mineral red, hence a ruby, while traces of chromium or titanium will stain the mineral blue, and that's when you get a sapphire. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But with that, we will close out this episode. So Jason, thanks again for spending time with us today. Uh, I thought it was really great to understand what's in the infrastructure bill. Also some insights into the CHIPS Act and just uh, you know understanding what kind of influencing we're doing in the industry is great to hear. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Camille. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation. Intel Corporation.